Hi, I'm Mark Lynch of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the PUMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with top scholars in the field. With me now is Stefan Hertog of the Department of Government at the London School of Economics. Uh, Stefan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Stefan, let's talk about uh, the political economy of the Gulf and Saudi Arabia specifically. You know, with, with oil prices plunging, it, it's introducing some real challenges to these economies. You've been writing about this for a long time. Tell me, how do you see this uh, seemingly long-term reduction in the price of oil affecting uh, the Saudi economy specifically? Uh, I think there's an interesting precedent to draw on, which is the, the 1980s and 1990s oil price and as a result of that fiscal crisis in the Gulf. And there are some interesting similarities and some interesting contrasts. Uh, what, what is pretty much the same is the high level of dependence of those economies, of government spending in those economies that drives domestic demand on oil production. So there's been very little diversification of state income since the 1980s. There's practically no domestic tax system. The private sector is a bit larger, a bit more diversified, but it produces almost nothing by way of state revenue. Uh, so that means that in the midterm, the current economic model is uh, under grave threat because there's very little private demand generation. There's um, few nationals who work in the private sector and actually draw a salary from the private sector. There is private demand, but it, it is, at the end of the day, directly or indirectly fed by government. And the massive reserves uh, that they've saved up, how long would those last? Uh, it depends on the country. In the case of Bahrain, uh, they would already be pretty much bankrupt if they weren't being bailed out by their neighbors, Saudi Arabia, and to a lesser extent, the United Arab Emirates. Uh, Oman is kind of heading towards bankruptcy. It's been taking some drastic fiscal decisions recently, uh, cutting some benefits of state employees, which would have been unthinkable a few years ago. Uh, the other countries have a bit more time. Uh, the big question is Saudi Arabia, which is the, the third in line, uh, and depending on where you project spending to head, uh, where you project the oil price, it would have uh, something between three and seven years under a status quo scenario before it's uh, leveraged up its debt to a level that's unsustainable and it's run down most of its reserves. So uh, there, there's a real sense of urgency. Not, not too long ago, I'm sure you saw Mohammed bin Salman's interview with, uh, I, believe, I believe it was Bloomberg, mm-hmm. um, where he said that, they, that when he looked at the finances, he saw two years yeah. before insolvency, which was a quite shocking thing for him to say. Yeah, I think what they did there was to extrapolate what would happen if the government uh, acted on all its formal spending commitments although that was never going to happen. There were a lot of contracts that the government would have never acted on. So I think that was uh, a way of uh, painting the situation a bit more dramatically than it actually was, and also implicitly blaming a bit of the situation on irresponsible fiscal policy before his ascendancy to become the, the kind of economic policy supremo in Saudi Arabia. So, so let's go back to this comparison with the oil bust of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So, so what followed from that, which is a comparable lesson for today? Uh, what kind of enduring changes to the state or to the patronage system? Uh, so what happened in the 80s and 90s was remarkably little. So the only thing they really did was to cut down capital spending all across the Gulf. So it's essentially spending on infrastructure and projects. Current spending, which is spending on salaries most of all, social transfers, providing basic public services, that never was touched. And in Saudi Arabia, which reached a pretty much unsustainable level of debt by the late 1990s, almost 100% of GDP of debt, though mostly held by domestic financial institutions, they never touched government employment. They added to the number of government employees every year. So there was clearly the bedrock 
of the political bargain on which the system was built, uh, and that was seen as sacrosanct. Uh, what's happening this time around is that there's been more aggressive, quicker cuts to subsidies, which is also something that wasn't touched or barely touched in the 80s and 90s, but there hasn't been any real uh, substantial talk about touching state employment, which in all of the countries is the biggest fiscal item and is set to grow because the working age population continues growing. So there are some differences in terms of a much more heightened sense of uh, alarm and some cuts in areas that are seen as uh, sensitive, but also uh, a similar reaction in terms of cutting capital spending and not touching the core entitlement of the Gulf social contract, which is public sector employment. Now, the idea that that uh, Saudi Arabia could be weaned off of oil in four years seems obviously wrong. I mean, right? That doesn't seem likely. But what do you make of the rhetoric of the idea that fundamental reforms, whether it's the 2020 or the 2030 plan, that fundamental reforms could, are, are going to be undertaken? How do you assess those plans? I think it's definitely true that more is happening, more will happen than was the case at any time, probably since the 1950s. A uh, different question is whether this will be enough to generate the kind of non-oil private economy that would keep Saudi Arabia on a sustainable fiscal path by 2030. And there are a lot of reasons to be skeptical about that because the structural state dependence of everything that's going on in the Saudi economy, even things that are formally technically private, is very, very high. So, uh, the, for example, if you look at the size of all Saudi wages being paid to nationals in the private sector, that comes to between 3 and 4% of GDP. Uh, that would be more like 40 to 50% of GDP in a mature economy. And this is where most private demand comes from. So to get from there to a self-sustaining, private-driven uh, growth path is a very, very long and hard slog. And in the meantime, the private sector will have to wean itself off its dependent on state-generated demand. So it'll, it'll be a very painful process and very likely one that even under the best of circumstances won't be accomplished by 2030. What do you, what do you think that the, the political implications would be of significant uh, changes to public sector employment or to these kind of wide-ranging subsidies that Gulf citizens have become come to expect? Uh, I think we were all surprised by the extent to which subsidy reforms have already happened across the GCC. So I think there's more tolerance for cutting into public benefits among Gulf populations than we would have thought, partially because the bar, I think, that you have to cross to be accepted as a ruler has been lowered drastically since the uprisings in 2011. I think a lot of Gulf citizens, Saudi citizens in particular, they're counting their blessings. They're seeing what's happening in the rest of the region. They're thinking, okay, the Saudi system, warts and all, is still better than you know, being a, a Yemeni, an Egyptian, an Iraqi, a Lebanese, or a, a Syrian citizen. So I think the government probably in the past has kind of self-censored to an extent that that was excessive. They could have gotten away with harsher measures. That being said, touching the bedrock of public employment is a different issue. So uh, they haven't, even in their very daring Vision 2030 statement, haven't really said anything about that. But unless they touch that, they're just on a fiscally unsustainable path. Now, will the new leadership experiment with that? Um, my guess would be Rather not because they will already be doing so many things, the introduction of a value-added tax, mm -hmm. subsidy reduction, uh, in the context of a general economic slowdown where there are fewer private sector jobs, that the pain will already be relatively intense. So unless there's a very smart way of restructuring uh, the distributional regime in the country, and there would be ways of perhaps moving from 
state employment as a tool of rent sharing to a general cash ground system. Unless you do something daring like that, just cutting public sector employment probably is not politically feasible. Well, so, so this goes into a broader set of questions that, you know, there's been an ongoing discussion in, in political science about this concept of the rentier state mm-hmm. and, and what it actually means in, in the world that we now live in. And so as these changes take root, do you think that will change uh, the way that the rentier state operates or the, or the political significance of this as a, as a category, a, a distributive state and, uh, you know, something which has this very distinctive model of citizenship and, and, and patronage? I think if there uh, is a change to the basic model of a state employment guarantee, that would imply change to the political economy of the rentier state. And that would be a moment when there has to be a quid pro quo that could be either material in terms of creating other less distortive channels of rent distribution, then it would be a kind of rentier state 2.0, as it were, uh, that would be less distortive, more efficient, but still be based on broad sharing of, of the rent. Or if there's kind of a unilateral withdrawal of that state employment guarantee with no material compensation, I think there might have to be some kind of political compensation. So I think then there would be a demand potentially for people to have more of a voice than government. The way in the past there have already been demands for popular or parliamentary participation in the context of discussions around taxation. Any time there was uh, an attempt to create a, a tax on the profits of private companies or even a tax on the income of expatriate residents, there were voices raised, including in the very tame Majlis Ashura in Saudi Arabia, that okay, perhaps we'll agree to a tax, but we want a voice in the budgetary process. We want budgetary transparency and we want to vote in what happens to, uh, to uh, state monies. So I think there is, a, there is an implicit link to that uh, no representation versus taxation link. What about the, the some people have talked about uh, the privatization of Saudi Aramco or even the very limited mm. part that, that's being discussed as a way of introducing kind of external oversight or accountability and transparency uh, as norms, which have not typically been norms. Yeah. Uh, do you think that that's a realistic argument or is that a little bit overstated? Uh, I do think it's a bit of the wrong priority because Saudi Aramco and all Saudi institutions is by uh, the agreement of almost all analysts, the best functioning one. So why fix the one institution that that works the best uh, in the context of a state apparatus that in many other sectors is is very bloated, very opaque, and very dysfunctional? So uh, even if there might be marginal benefits in terms of corporate governance, efficiency, oversight, uh, I don't see why in a situation of impending fiscal crisis that should be the priority rather than fixing the rest of the government. Uh, And also the plan seems to be to list Aramco only on the local stock market. And uh, the Saudi stock market, although it has been developing fairly rapidly, is not on the standard of Western stock markets in terms of uh, the oversight exerted by institutional investors, the level of information that's generated through listed companies. So the kind of positive impact on corporate governance, I think, would be relatively limited. And at the same time, you would be shaking up an institutional arrangement that has worked quite well for the kingdom, uh, with you know, most oil analysts agreeing that Aramco yeah. is by far the best national oil company among OPEC countries. So then, from what you're saying, it sounds like um, the, the most likely outcome is actually not really major, substantive, root and branch institutional reform, but rather muddling through with some, you know, some reforms on the side, 
taking on growing international debt as in the 1980s and then basically waiting for the prices to go back up. Is, is that basically what you're seeing then? I think it's not the intention, but that could very well be the scenario because a lot of the more painful reforms that are, that are going to happen on the fiscal side regarding subsidies and transfers, uh, they will exhaust some political goodwill and changing the state apparatus itself, although there is an attempt to uh, introduce dashboards and performance management and all that will be very difficult unless you uh, you take a stab at the state employment guarantee, which I, I don't think they're willing to do right now. So then, but is that a viable strategy then, basically going on to the international markets, taking on new debt and um, I think they waiting can, it out? <laughs> they, they can stretch it out for a long time. I mean, a lot depends on where the oil price heads, if it should recover to between 50 and $60 per barrel, uh, given that there will be some non-oil revenues through new taxes and fees and, and subsidy reforms, and there will be cuts to capital spending, they can stretch it out for quite a long time. So the, the, the day of reckoning can certainly be pushed back quite a bit. Do you think this might lead to uh, some decoupling of the GCC countries where, you know, you've actually seen much more almost cooperative and you know, it's actually be functioning like a real alliance mm. uh, in many ways in recent years. But as, you know, Qatar goes its way and the UAE goes its way, everything from, you know, the opening of the Iranian market um, affecting Gulf states differentially to the price of oil collapsing, affecting them differently. Do you think that this is something which could lead to more independent action by policies by the different Gulf states? Or do you think this general sense of being besieged and threatened will continue to impose unity? I think right now the trend is still towards unity. And, and even the higher rent countries, Kuwait, the UAE and Qatar, are under some fiscal stress in the long run. Um, opinions differ on, on Iran. But you know, Saudi Arabia will just have to deal with the fact that, that Iran mm -hmm. is going to be reintegrated into uh, the, the international economy. Um, one factor where uh, I think there is a strong interest in cooperation is in defending the currency pegs that mm. all of those countries have. And uh, this is something that could come under a lot of stress when reserves run out. Uh, it certainly will come under stress in Bahrain and Oman in the moment when it will happen in, in Saudi is perhaps only a, f a few years away. And if one of the pegs goes, then all of the others will be under threat. So that I think there's an implicit interest in cooperating at least on uh, mutual defense of, of currency threats, which, you know, if, for example, Kuwait and the UAE should, should open currency swap lines for the Saudi real to be exchanged against dollars in the case of a speculative attack, that would be a very, very significant step. So are there any, um, you know, kind of ideas that are out there in wide circulation about the impact of, of these oil prices? Are there any ideas out there that you think are just wrong? Things that people should not be taking seriously, but they seem to be? Um, I think, uh, you mean in terms of policy responses? Yeah. Uh, th there's uh, some language in the, the this new Vision 2030 that does sound a bit like the vision statements that were made in Abu Dhabi in 2004-2005 after the death of Sheikh mm -hmm. Zayed, uh, based on large-scale infrastructure investments, you know, the, the, the new bridge to Egypt, the biggest Islamic museum in the world. Uh, those are uh, similar to projects that have been undertaken in Abu Dhabi that have been quite costly, the economic rationale of which is quite questionable. Now, it hasn't hurt Abu Dhabi because Abu Dhabi is just so rich that, that they can get away with you know, whatever misallocation of resources they decide to, to, to go ahead with. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, I think the, the fiscal cover is so much thinner that uh, 
allocation to potential white elephants could be much, much more dangerous. So I, there's not much concrete uh, material there, but I, I do see that uh, temptation. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Stefan Hertog, London School of Economics. Uh, thanks for joining the show. Thank you.